from Immersive Labs, this is Cyber Humanity. Hello again, I'm your host Chris Pace. In these podcasts we try to look at cybersecurity from a human point of view, social engineering, hacker motivations, industry trends and more. They essentially come in two flavours, either us ranting about themes close to the hearts of security types or us chatting about threat and security stuff from recent weeks and this episode is one of those. As per usual, I'm joined by Kev Breen. Hello. Paul Bentham. Hello. And Max Vetter. Hello. So this week we are going to begin by um, tr- treading towards potentially some controversy. Um, we did that thing again where we started talking about this before we started recording the podcast, <laughs> and had to because we all had so, <laughs> there was so much a bit ranting. Yeah, I think it was it, people were almost. I would go as far as to say angry. Ooh. Was <laughs> Let's see anger. if we can keep was, it under <laughs> under our hats. Yeah, I think that, so. <laughs> people may get to a gentle simmer. During this uh, during this conversation, <laughs> we're about to talk, talk about next. If you live in the UK, unless you live under a rock, you will know that the government has decided to remove Huawei five uh, G kit um, from uh, the five G rollout that's been uh, happening here. Um, I don't know how long has this been going on for. It feels like forever. It feels longer than Crossrail. Well, that, I, this is this has been going on forever because the idea that a foreign national who has uh, stated aims against quote-unquote the West would have telephony equipment in the core of the UK's network is a fear, right? It's a fear. We've been worried about this for a long time. And Huawei are innovating in this space and they're the ones with the 5G technology and they're the first to the market and and it was all done. We were done with this. I'm Mm -hmm. a little bit I'm verging on ranty, but we were done with this already. We, I do remember. I do remember watching a documentary where Ian Lee, the NCSC, was interviewed on Panorama, and you know was very clear about the fact that you know this was the right equipment. The security concerns or the the risks that were there, they felt were effectively mitigated. It, it was reass- essentially reassuring the public, um, and yet probably about two, maybe a year or so later, here we are. I mean, look, here's the thing, right? So the NCSC have been working with Huawei hand, hand in hand for probably five years. I think there's been five annual reports. So something around about since 2014, 2013, 2014. At the, you know, at the highest levels to provide the assurance that the ways that they're building the equipment that that you know it's not like they've snuck in some tech that's got like oh look at this back door we know all the secret keys like it's none of that it's been properly assessed as being secure not for the use in the most sensitive network so let's be 100% clear here like we're not saying that it's going to be doing top secret comms for the nuclear submarines but what they had approved and back it like as as recently as March, that Huawei equipment could be used in UK telephony for five G. And then, and now, for, uh, and now for some reason, we can't. Well, what, well, we know why we can't. It's partly politics. So, <laughs> like, we've partly, partly, well, partly. It's I were like I'm a little like what. What the US have done. <laughs> I'm being trying to be very kind here. <laughs> He's <tip-toeing. laughs> trying to be very kind here. 
Well, it is actually quite interesting from a technical perspective. But what the US have done is that they do not want Huawei quit. And I don't suspect it was great at the political levels for when the US said, this is a bad idea. And the UK said, hey, we're fine with it. Mm. But what the US did is they've changed the rules. So they put, uh, I'm going to have to read this out, a foreign produced direct product rule so they changed an export control rule so all governments have export control rules that mm. stop you exporting stuff that you don't want the baddies to have right so uh it's encrypted products so the uk if you're a company in the uk and you're using encryption you have to uh, apply for um, an export license and you know what these are really good ideas like if i've written a, a, a bit of technology that allows me to spy on my citizens you don't really want that in the hands of a totalitarian state, right? That seems like a bad thing. And, you know, developers... I'm, I am a bit ranty about this, aren't I? Yeah. Developers don't want to... Everybody's looking at me. I'm like, <laughs> I'm ranting already, aren't I? I haven't even started. <laughs> so the US have changed the foreign direct... Uh, foreign produced direct product rule, which stops uh, the export of tools and technologies used in the fabrication of chips. So it's super subtle. Now, what this means is... Huawei, people manufacturing Huawei uh, chips to go into their 5G uh, networking uh, capabilities, and these are like the base stations, all the core network stuff, can't use US tools to do that. And if they can't do the, use the US tools to do that, which they've been using to this date to manufacture the kind of super like um, the small gaps in the uh, in the fabrication of the chips, if they can't use US kit to do that, then they're going to have to buy the chips from elsewhere. And if they can't buy the chips from elsewhere, then all of the work that the N and if they do buy the chips from elsewhere, then all the work that the NCSE have done to assure that security of that supply chain and all that technology is null and void. And therefore, the NCSE can no longer guarantee the security of that equipment in UK networks, and therefore Huawei kit can no longer be used. Wait, so just to let it get me straight, this is the, <laughs> the funny bit about this is the US said these chips are dodgy and they might hack you so because of that we're going to take put a, put the sanctions on the chips which therefore make them potentially dodgy and could hack you so now we have to ban them <laughs> exactly yeah That's, i mean it's, it's so, just amazing yeah, it's brilliant <laughs> i mean in some ways like if i don't get ranty about it in some ways it's a very clever way for u.s uh, government policy to influence global policy and it shows you how dependent we are on a global supply chain. Like, mm. what what's going to be really interesting is how on earth the Chinese um, uh, retaliate. Well, we are, of course, even more dependent in the context of Brexit. We we are we're in a position of we're in a weaker position right now, attempting to negotiate um, with, amongst other countries, the United States. And so, um, in in a way, the timing. For, for for them couldn't be better i'm trying to understand some of the de some of the more in-depth parts of this but one of the things that's slightly concerning is that they are saying there is um you know the potential that there are security issues with this equipment yet they're saying that the equipment itself won't be removed until 2027 well no no you've got to so be super careful. The NCSC aren't saying there's security issues with the equipment right. they've evaluated. Okay. What they're saying is they can't. There won't be an unlimited supply chain of parts for the 
equipment so from this date forward the manufacturers of huawei chips that they need in this equipment is now either somebody's got to break us law to mm-hmm. um to build those chips which seems unlikely huawei switched chips to a different uh, manufacturer that aren't either aren't huawei designed or haven't used this technology to design them which seems also unlikely or someone makes some new tools but in both of those like latter two cases the technology will not have been part of the evaluation that NCSC have already carried out. And therefore, NCSC can't assure those new designs of those chips or those new replacement parts. This isn't just 5G either. Like the fibre core is also um, provided oh, yeah. by Huawei as well. So yeah, FTTP the, stuff. Yeah, so that's going to have to come out as well as part of this. So even though... And this is the thing that that strikes me as a bit odd, is the, the deadline still applies to this stuff. So... These are using those chips that have already been approved. They're using the technology that's already been approved, yet we're rushing to pull them out. And I get that if they break, then we need to have the supply chain in place, but we need to temper this response and not just rush to yank everything out. I think mean, they've got seven years. We're not rushing. Yeah. Seven years. Seven years. Seven years. We're, we're doing the exact opposite of rushing. We're not allowed to bring any, as of December, we're not allowed to bring anything new in. So if one of these fiber routers breaks, we can't replace it because that supply chain is now blocked to us so we're gonna have to go quick to get it out because we're gonna need uh, replacements should uh, kits start breaking which is inevitable to happen um, and what happens with all the private companies who are, you know a lot of them uh, have hold of this kit or have will have contracts with Huawei I assume they just all have to what go to the next vendor which is i assume is as of today put their prices up <laughs> a lot like how, how does that even work i mean the ncse are kind of uh, keen to point out that it's not just at huawei it's all high risk vendors and presumably that means like vendors of important kit from countries we don't like you summarize the whole challenge and we have discussed this on previous podcasts it, on previous episodes of this podcast we are seeing security concerns in technology being used as political levers to pull because governments get to decide, you know, who bad actors are and who, like, okay actors are, despite the fact that they could be doing exactly the same thing. And that is a, that feels to me like the climate that we're in now is that the, is that the idea of the impact of a, of a cyber attack is so prevalent is so front of mind for the general public that using it as a way to generate fear of um those uh, countries that have you know opposing political viewpoints to us is a um like is an is an easy thing to do i you know the other thing that i'm sort of mini ranty about was that this week a lot of the front page headlines of our newspapers i think it was either the sunday or monday papers it was cyber 911 like there's a coming yes. cyber so somebody from government had been briefing the newspapers that there was a cyber 911 coming like i don't even know where to start with that kind of briefing what what are the public supposed to do with that fact like thousands of people are going to be killed by a cyber incident what what are you talking about like that that's got nothing to do with what we're defending and, and worried about with cyber was that a pre-brief to make this whole huawei decision seem less bad or more justified what what is what is going on <laughs> without getting into the political realm do we I'll go around and ask you, you all, do we think this decision would have been made with a different government and different administration? <laughs> what, hang on, in the UK, UK political. Like, in, in the UK, UK or in the US? Both in the UK, UK and in the US. I, well, so let me take the UK question. So 
the NCSC have played this with a completely straight bat, as far as I'm concerned. They played it apolitically. They didn't duck. They could have made the decision back in March, February, when they first came up with their recommendation. They didn't. They played it with a straight bat. They said, technically, we have assured it. We're happy with it, the capability. And frankly, and I'm off on my other mini rant right now, the thing that hurts here is innovation. The technology that Huawei are bringing to the innovation of next generation equipment is the thing and we as consumers are going to suffer from this decision because it's put back the progress of telecoms mm -hmm. equipment just because the u.s don't like the china oh, i've done it haven't i just because the u.s don't like it <laughs> and and it's donald trump and it's it's the trump administration that have done this it's put it back to the tune of uh seven years and two billion pounds at at minimum that it will cost this country to fix that, to fix that problem. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's gone back further. Like I said, there's going to be a lot of companies now who are going to have to play catch up, and in the time they're catching up, well, two things. So one, we're losing that advantage because we no longer have the technology, and second, like Huawei aren't going to stop; they're going to keep going. Like China's telecoms are going to advance quicker now than ours. So we're, we're doing a disservice to ourselves in two places. Having the wrong argument. Like, the innovation in the internet isn't for us as consumers. Like, imagine all the exciting possibilities you get from having, you know, ultra-high def... I don't quite even know what the F5G bandwidth is, but, like, ultra-high def streaming to a single endpoint. Like, the next generation of services that you get and the innovation you get on top of yeah. the commodity of the network is the critical thing it'd be like somebody like killing battery innovation for me like mm. somebody for the love of god make a really good battery that's the thing that's holding back every bit of like technical advancement like network bandwidth and batteries solve those problems e elon solve musk is life. just going back to that point about the uh, the ncsc and and their uh, their kind of involvement in the in this decision and the PR around it. Um, it it's similar uh, in the article that you were talking about, the Cyber 911 article. Um, actually, the NCSC is was obviously approached for for comment. The most of the comment in that article came from some some MP, some Tory MP, um, the chairman of the Commons Defence Select Committee, and he gets like. A paragraph's worth of him talking about you know the the way of life we take for granted is under real threat and all this kind of stuff <laughs> britain's national cyber security center said it is not expecting a rise in attacks that's the one <laughs> sentence that's the one sentence the national cyber security center that's the one mention that they got in that article mm. i can imagine to no. say that though is it can you just imagine being in the NCSC uh, press office where they say, hey, we're going to go to press with the Cyber 911 headline. You got any comments <laughs> for it? They're like, what? What? What, what are you talking about? Uh, we're not expecting any increased threats. Like, it's, it reads like the it reads like a bad airport novel, first of all, like the it's got all the classic um, all the classic fear mongering that you would expect. Like, it is completely possible that national infrastructure will be ground to a halt and there will be um, phone and power blackouts and bring hospitals, governments and businesses to a halt, the Daily Mail reported. <laughs> um, I mean, I didn't even dare read it because I didn't have enough. I just didn't have enough energy to be angry about it. But I, it's disrespectful 
to the people that died and the families of the people that died to claim that any kind of cyber incident, unless there's some, unless you're talking about something that is completely like diehard 4.0 level of <laughs> um, incident, like unless you're talking about that, and even that rioting and like complete like shutdown of society, unless you're talking about something like that, then it's disrespectful to call it a 9/11 because people actually died then and that's completely different to any cyber incident that you could imagine so we yeah. just talk shall we just talk briefly as we wrap up this segment then about how as you know those of us who are in the community working in cybersecurity. um what i find interesting about articles like this is that they're you know the ncsc gets one line and the politicians get three paragraphs how do we how do we go about fixing that because the facts you know there are facts that need to be you know that need to be communicated you know it references the australia you know the australia report the sustained you know, cyber attacks, that's the way they're describing that Australia's come under, which hasn't been effectively attributed in any way. So no one is able to say, you know, as a fact, this is a nation state actor or this is you mean China. a true fact. The tr yeah, or an alternate or a potentially an true alternative fact. fact. Yeah. Um, so it, it just feels to me like as, a, as an industry, there's a job for us to do here. As a community, there's a job for us to do. The NCSC, it feels like, are potentially a little bit trapped between the 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 politics and their and their role um and so what can what can be done how can we be uh, or those who represent uh, the industry in the in the wider and more mainstream media how can they start to pour at least a little bit of water on some of these um some of these fires because it's getting worse happening every week i think but i think i think the um it's played out everywhere like and the ncsc you could say is the role of the scientists here they're just trying to give facts, yes. trying to give the reality. Yes. And then we know what's happened to science in, the, in, the, in this last few years. <laughs> science yeah. isn't something that has real facts or it, it's just a theory that you can discount if you choose to. And it's similar here and it goes across the board with media kind of accepting non-facts because they're more exciting and and why not if a politician is saying something there's going to be a, a, a cyber 9-11 that's much more interesting to cover that than the NCSC just say there's not and that and that's the problem across it it's, it's more interesting news and it's the news that the politicians want to push so that that's the main problem here as well I feel like we talked about I feel like we were talking about this you know a, a few months ago um when we were talking about the whole zoom thing and how that all got massively blown out of proportion in the mainstream media and it feels to me like there's a um it, these are easy fears to play on now um and so they're places where the mainstream media goes in order to you know in order to hype up this stuff uh, leading us on neatly um to talk about uh tiktok now tiktok has become massively <laughs> popular over the last um, year or so um, and we saw there was a bit of security research that was done like Kev I think you've got some insight here but there was a bit of security research done a little while ago saying you should never have this app installed on your phone there's all these things that are wrong with it um, and I seem to remember that it wasn't actually that bad um, but now there, there are bands cropping up all over the place so how bad is the TikTok thing like is it is it really a security risk or is it over overplayed so I wouldn't go so far as to say there was a good bit of security research done. Um, okay. There's, uh, and there's a guy who took the TikTok app and like pulled it to pieces and made some very bold sweeping statements. And some of it's true, some of it's hype. Uh, like 
TikTok, the same as most other social media platforms, they're interested in you and your data. Like that's their sole purpose of being is how they make money. They're a money driving business. Is it worth um, uh, is it worth repeating the often used statement that if you're not paying for something, you are the product? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I would argue that the the TikTok privacy statements, like they're very loose, like everything you upload, like immediately belongs to the company. They can use it however they like, don't have to ask you. But again, like these things shouldn't be surprising to you if you're like creating videos and you're sharing it with the whole world You're sharing with the world anyway. Um, There were some like faux pas uh, in some of the code. Um, Like they were using GPS pinging, maybe more than you should be. Um, You you couldn't install the app without turning it off, but they weren't strictly speaking like, oh my God, they're, they're, if you're a privacy advocate, then this is bad. But for everybody else, it's not as bad as you think it is. Can I guess that TikTok's a Chinese app? There you go. And uh, so I've just pulled. um, So the reason why the US um, and large companies are starting to kick this in is because a couple of months ago or in July, uh, a load of K-pop fans uh, abused TikTok to... Uh, to take control of the Trump rally. Oh uh, yeah, I love this. Story. Story. This was this yeah. was the oh. TikTok, the TikTok that went viral. That was basically you can all go online and buy tickets to this Trump yes. rally. Yes, a million and that's people. That's what they did to make it seem like it was sold out. Oh, in no. fact, hardly anyone turned up. So oh, at no which way. point? No way. Yeah. So he's bad. Oh. Yeah. So at which point Trump confirmed the US is considering a TikTok ban. Uh, look what happened with China with this virus, what they've done to this country and to the entire world is disgraceful. This is Trump in a private vendetta against the TikTok company and blaming China um, because as far as he's concerned, uh, this is political manipulation. Um, and that's what he said. Like That's what he came out and said. So TikTok and Huawei is, is quite an interesting. I saw a video described how uh, Chinese apps are being developed and, and analogized um, the apps being created like on an island away from the mainland and, and, and where the animals would evolve in, in a different way. And because the, the apps within China have to work within the, the firewalls of China and they have to have all this access from the Chinese authorities. So they naturally already are going to be pretty bad in privacy. But Interestingly, they are innovating way faster than we are. You know, they, they uh, if you look at WeChat, which is a massive app in, in China, it does so much more than originally, I think it kind of was trying to be Facebook, right? And now it's Facebook and everything else is LinkedIn. And, and so- It does payment transactions in WeChat. It, do, it, does, it does everything. A friend of mine just came back from, well, it was in China, came back during the coronavirus. She, you can't buy anything unless you've got a WeChat account. Like, yeah. you literally you can, you can, need it to exist. You can literally do everything, which on one side, if we're thinking about human rights and data, it's really scary. But this is all part of that is they are innovating. Now, they're innovating in a different way. And uh, from a, a Western democracy side, side it's, it is scary that they do have access to all this data and the Chinese authorities require you to give access. But on the other side, if we're just banning all that innovation, that will, as, as Paul said earlier, will will just make us all, um, you know, weaker and and not as as rich in the future for the the development of tech india have banned it india what's india what's india's relationship with china like i don't know what not i don't think it's don't think it's great can you imagine you're sitting there in the tiktok headquarters you think i've got this app it's gone viral it's the one probably the number one downloaded like one of the most popular like it's it like culture 
global culture is kind of coming out through this app and you're thinking i'm so proud of this product i've built i love our users like oh, i don't like being chinese but i just you know i don't like having to d deal with all the chinese government like stuff but hey i just have to deal with it and then all of a sudden overnight because donald trump doesn't like tiktok he said he's banning it and then everybody's banning it and he's and and we've seen like his form when it comes to like make, making political threats like maybe i'm a little bit too political here but like i'd be really disappointed like if i'm in that product company and this lovely app i've built is banned we're already sad. starting to see um and i hate the term but tiktok influencers uh they're already being um pulled away to uh, other platforms so uh smaller platforms insta uh so Insta instagram and companies are actually paying people to move from mm. tiktok uh to other platforms sake. like instagram so they can draw their following with them uh and arguably now we've got five or six different new products which we don't know anything about that haven't had any kind of uh oversight. Like tiktok's been out enough that people have looked at it and are comfortable with it so um, yeah i think yeah, this, is a, this is another example of it not being a cyber issue uh yes the, the knock on the knock on though is that um once governments start to ban things then companies start to ban things as well so i you know a company that i worked at previously um you know during when the whole huawei thing first uh, first came up we were at, we were able to choose our own laptops um and we got an email saying if you if you have a huawei laptop you need to get rid of it and buy something else um so companies are prepared you know companies are prepared to go along with these um with these decisions make an assumption that the that the government is you know, is leading them in the in the right way. When it all feels like what we're saying is that clearly, right now, it is all highly politicized. And ironically, coming coming back to cyber full circle for a minute, I feel like this all started with Kaspersky, a company that had been establishing itself as a leading player, building their brand globally. Um, you know trusted by tons of companies you know, thousands of companies all over the world um and then an aspersion was cast again without real proof an aspersion was cast and suddenly it was like well now kaspersky now kaspersky is banned mainly because they're a russian headquartered company and we don't you know we don't like that very much it's just what's really annoying about it is that if you were banning companies based on their cybersecurity credentials alone, I would never have to use WebEx again. And that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, WebEx. Ironically, WebEx continues to escape the axe of this of this ban. How is that even possible? Oh, wait, it's a US company, so they're good security vulnerabilities. Right. They're good security vulnerabilities in a terrible, terrible product. Yes. But it, it makes it, it does make a good point that you know there are Chinese companies and I'm sure Russian companies that are being controlled by the state and that are bad for our security and just getting rid of companies because they're Chinese uh, in in these instances uh, just dilutes the message right if if you if you don't trust any science then then you don't trust any science you know it's and and that's the problem is how do we know now whether anything is good cybersecurity or not, or if it's just the whim of a politician. How'd I get on rant out of 10? Was I like eight? It wasn't bad. No, not too bad. Is, is, how does it compare to my uh, Amazon Fire thing on the oh, plane? Oh, no, it's rant? nowhere near that. Oh, oh no, yeah. <laughs> Solid 11. The, 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 the pitch woke up every dog uh, in the street from the Amazon Fire rant. <laughs> <laughs>
did we do F five properly? Because those the stuff yeah. we did on F five, yeah, yeah we covered we... it in a fair amount of detail. Did we talk about all the bad coding practices though? As I've done more investigation, like I found like some terrible, terrible, terrible things. <laughs> right. Well, don't stop now. So I took one of their archives, one of their things. I ran the static code analyzer against, and yes, there's going to be false positives in there, but five and a half thousand results. <laughs> like, even if only 1% of those, and like, I've already found valid findings. I've already reported valid findings from that data set up to F5. Have they got bug bounty accepted them. No, no that's fucking don't. brilliant. Of course oh, they I'm don't. swearing again. Like they in the email I got from F five security, they point out the fact that in the email they say we do not offer any financial rewards for any disclosed vulnerabilities, but we'll put your name on it. Oh, oh nice. That's nice. nice. Well, then you've made it. They're a two billion dollar company. Uh, and I'd argue that the reason they don't want a bug bounty is because they'd lose all two billion of their revenue. <laughs> <laughs> One pound uh, per per vulnerability. At one point, there was a JSP script, which is, uh, there's a Java page, which calls a Perl script, which renders HTML, which calls a bash script, which calls orc. And the get request... <laughs> That's how I decoded it. The get request is passed all the way from the bit of code I write in the URL, Ooh, to orc. all the way through that entire chain, all the way to orc. And the only Amazing. thing that saves them, the only thing that saves them is they strip spaces. <laughs> so, like, it's so bad. It's so bad that it ends up being secure. There's a 2000, there's a library that runs their database. That library is from 2008. That library was updated last week. Wow. But they're still using the 2008 version. Like they're using Java Seven, which went end of life. Like I'm, I'm getting ranty now because this thing is Kev, so Kev's gone awful. Like, it's gone. so bad. This is level ten rant for Kev. Like, I, um, <laughs> they've got Java applications. They've got PHP. They've He's got Angular. Going. They've got. Like, <laughs> honestly, like Shall when I started to look what at it, I got so bad. I got so, I got so upset. What, what happens in the PHP stuff, Kev? <laughs> it's php3 that the file extensions are php3 like it's it's so bad like i i think i cried i i, I think i died a little inside like the more i read yeah so yeah that's that's the the extra stuff on f5 that we found since last week i'm like i'm calling it now there's going to be more vulnerabilities oh, i mean i mean is it that i mean Tell me why it's not as bad as it sounds, Kev. Uh, it, so this thing is monolithic. Um, but it's not internet-facing, is it? These are like it, second it line of defense. Yeah, it shouldn't be internet-facing. Like We know there are 7,582 of them internet-facing, but that's misconfiguration. Um, and... Whilst there are a lot of like there are a lot of incredibly bad code in practice, but bad code in practice doesn't mean vulnerable. Uh, what it does mean is that, like, so the the thing with F five, there was a bypass of uh, there was an authentication bypass that then meant these bad coding practices suddenly came into play. If something else like that comes along, um, like there's some way of bypassing a check or somebody finds it, then all of these things suddenly kick into play. Okay, so uh, last week we were talking about the rare double event, I've now dubbed it the double event, um, of two CVSS 10s 
um, you know, CVEs with CVSS tens in it. And we're saying it doesn't happen all that often. You know, it's fairly rare. Um, and then this week we've had another two. Um, so we we've seen uh, one in uh, Windows DNS, um, and then this one in SAP that we're going to talk about, um, which has been codenamed Recon. That's a pretty it's a bit lazy. Poor, yeah. It's uh, well, actually, oh, uh, I discovered yeah. uh, remote code execution on Netweaver. Uh, I think is the uh, is the acronym for Recon. Hang on, well, that's the wrong way round. That would be R C E. No, R E remote. Sir R code. That's lazy. And not only lazy. But grammatically incorrect. <laughs> also, yeah. Kev did that in a slightly patronising way. R eh? That's how I <laughs> like take my daughter like to I'm read. A four-year-old just, learning uh, to I'm, read. I'm, yeah. I'm bringing it down to your level, Paul. <laughs> Actually, it helps a lot. So let's talk about let's talk about the thrilling remote code execution in uh, Netweaver. SAP Netweaver. In fact. Kev, you can start off by telling us what NetWeaver is. Uh, so SAP is a whole suite of products, and they're used in large enterprise, and they're used for like business critical applications. Um, I think there's a, a quote somewhere from a Fortune 500 CISO that says, uh, if SAP were to go down, they'd lose $20 million a second or a minute or something ridiculous like that. Nice. Um, the they do a lot of stuff. I've used these in previous companies, like all of our expenses, like all of our pay, like all of that stuff went through a SAP application. Uh, so these are big and they're expensive, which means you usually only find them in large organizations. Um, and this vulnerability actually sits in the underlying operating system. So this is a Java-based stack. So you have lots of different SAP Java applications the vulnerability exists in the application server, uh, in the underlying thing. So um, this affects pretty much every SAP product. And what makes this a bit, so this is authentication bypass. Um, from a standard uh, web browser, I can send a HTTP request or a series of them uh, that will let me create an admin account, which gives me full access to your entire SAP environment. And SAP is designed to be public facing it's designed for your users to access it um, from like from any of their laptops uh, these things typically are open to the internet because your users need to be able to use it uh, so this one has the potential to be fairly damaging to an organization so um, not in terms of like what you could do with the vulnerability uh, but in terms of the level of access of data you get so you could start manipulating uh, payments, finances, there's a lot of damage that could happen there. So you think it justifies its its 10, its 10 out of 10? Uh, like the, in terms of the actual vulnerability itself, maybe not. But in terms of the impact that it can have on an organization, I think definitely, yeah. But we, but we aren't seeing this being exploited yet, as far as we know. We like there's been, Oh no, I should ask another question. Have any national security agencies gone public to talk <laughs> about whether they think this is a threat that we should be concerned about? Uh, none that I've seen, and uh, and this is the bit that I, I really hate. So, uh, the amount of pre-release that went into this uh, announcement of this recon bug. So, they did what they did one thing right. So, responsible disclosure. Uh, with SAP, report them, fix them, release patches, wonderful, brilliant. Uh, and then they did the public disclosure. Uh, so it's like, now we're going to come out and tell people that this thing exists and like reinforce the fact that it's important to patch. Mm. 
great. So the first thing I do is I want to know what it is, how it works, like all of this technical detail. So I start to Google, I start to look, and I hit the first paywall of where I have to hand over my name, email address, job title. How, how much information were they giving you before the paywall? Uh, no more than is in the advisory. So just there's a vulnerability that affects all mm. SAP products. These are the versions you want to update to. Right. Um, so for the actual technical details, the bit that's really interesting, one as a red team, if I want to go into this, but more importantly, as a network defender, like understanding what this is, how to spot it, what kind of logs, like what kind of things to look for. Those are the important things. And like with the F5 vulnerability, with the uh, other vulnerabilities that get reported, they're very open about sharing this. Um, but and I can't even remember the name of the company, Onesies? Anapsis. Anapsis. Onesies. That's a different Google you've been doing there, Kevin. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I'm on the ZDNet article, Recon Bug, Let's Hackers Create Admin Accounts on SAP. Great. Uh, the bug code named Recon. Uh, so I click on that and I get a sign up for our webinar. <laughs> not, even a, not even a blog. Not even, no blog article that literally their website is sign up for our webinar. Download the PDF. All right, so you've got a technical PDF. Let me download that. All right, so you want my name, my job description, like where I work, like the name of my mother's name. You want all this fine. Just have some of that with a fake account. I get, I get the technical PDF that doesn't give me any technical information. It's a webinar. sales pitch. Like this. Should have joined uh, that this, webinar, see? This company is a SAP security company like their entire purpose of being is to provide security to sap and i get that you've got your bottom line like you've made the discovery you get the right to own some of that but like don't lock all of that useful technical information that i need as a defender uh, and force me to listen to 35 minutes of your sales pitch before showing me a low res video I think that oh. I think that may have ground another round coming little, on. Ground his gears a little, <laughs> and, and I had to, I break. would have to say that as a you know so now uh, putting my marketer's hat on. Um, of course, it, our industry our industry requires a fine balance between the amount of uh, intelligence that we you know that we share against um, against attempting to generate interest in the in the product that we're selling. But in most cases, where the work has been done that demonstrates you're an, you have expertise in that field. Actually, the last thing you want to do is put it behind a paywall. It doesn't advantage anybody. and actually doesn't, doesn't advantage you or your, or your brand. And now you've got a negative experience of them. I mean, we've just gone through that. This is a CVSS 10, and we recognize this is critical. And the day it was released, it was, join us in eight hours, and we'll tell you about this. Like... I'm awake now. I want to fix this now. I don't want to wait eight hours till I'm in the correct time zone for you to be able to tell me more. Yeah, I understand. And the, the webinar thing, I understand actually is probably the better method. The Probably the better methodology would have been, um, here's a blog that gives you the technical information that you need. We're going to run a webinar that will go into detail about how we discovered this thing and all the kind of background that someone like you would be would be interested in and probably would have been prepared to sacrifice your information for. And I so I I joined the webinar. Like either way, I was still interested. I would have joined that because the webinar was setting out like, what are the what's the risks? And I, that was the one thing. So not to fully hate on them, they did go into the like, what are the dangers of this? Like what kind of information is exposed? They covered that bit really well. 
it's just like i could have i could have been more proactive with the other stuff had you done like some better uh, there's there's no reason is there any reason whatsoever that they do that and not either put a video on their website or put it in a blog the rest of their Uh, marketing is so bad potentially that this is the one thing that they felt they could if they knew they were going to get heaps of press this was the one thing that they thought they could have maximized in order to to get as many well I'm not even going to call them leads that what they're trying to do is to build their database with the right kind of people um and so it's also ended up making them look less credible and that actually is what will end up hurting them because if someone is responsible for security for sap they now there's now the risk that they don't consider these guys an op- as an option because they've hurt their credibility in that way yeah, I was just looking through the SAP Security Day release notes, which are on the second Tuesday of every month. Fun website. Thrilling. Thrilling. <laughs> um, their priority is low to hot news. Yes, hot news. <laughs> <laughs> forgotten about that. Right. What's really interesting is I know we're talking about this one now because Kev's a bit grumpy about the webinar <laughs> he had to go to. Um, but actually, there have been 18 hot news priority <laughs> this year alone. This is a lot of webinars. That, yeah, I don't think I don't think announcers did a webinar for each of them. But I don't think SAP is great for security. Is kind of my takeaway since since we went into lockdown that's triggered a lot of this like we're finding a lot more bug hunter security researchers with a lot more free time on their hand to go and do these deeper dives where they've got the time and the capacity to to start taking a closer look at some of these products um with a lot of these uh, products being available uh, really t- so before you used to have to run large infrastructure you have to pay very expensive licenses mm. to get these with places like aws marketplace with azure marketplace uh, I can spin one of these up for like $12 a day uh, and just have free reign on it to play. Now, that would be a better Daily Mail headline. Not Cyber 9-11, but bored vulnerability researchers save the day by not drinking beer as much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we still drink beer while we do research. And I think that's where I must bring us to a close. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your audio content. And if you want to know more about Immersive Labs, you can find us at ImmersiveLabs.com or follow us on Twitter at Immersive Labs UK. Are we not going to talk about Sigrid then? I oh, know, it's boring. Till next time from all of us, goodbye.